Lord, as we encounter this wall, as we find this wall in this passage, as we look at it, as we consider it, help us to first of all see the wall, and then secondly, motivate us to deal with this wall. It's my prayer in your name. Amen. Well, we are in the midst of our spring sermon series. This spring, we're looking at the concept of walls, the topic of walls. There's the graphic for this series, walls. We've been looking at different walls within Scripture. We looked, for example, at the walls of Jericho and what uh, that story was all about. Last Sabbath, Pastor Steve told us about the walls of Damascus, which Paul was lowered down over by his friends. That was another story that we looked at. This week, we're going to look at the sixth wall in the series, and there's also been different small groups that have been meeting throughout the week, uh, studying these passages and and talking about them and hopefully growing together, uh, not only in the knowledge of the Bible, but in fellowship with one another. So uh, many of you already know what this passage is about. But as I mentioned, this is the sixth one, and this one is about the parable of the tenants, or lease ease, we might say today. Uh, in older language, older English, it's called the parable of the vine dressers. We don't use that word too much anymore. You don't want to talk about vine dressing. We have other dressing, but not vine dressing. All right? And we also, uh, it's also called the husbandman, because that's another kind of King James term for people who take care of, of the land. Husbandman. Well, now we would call it the parable of the tenants. The parable of the tenants is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. Those are the gospels that sort of uh, coincide with each other, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's also the second parable in this chapter, Matthew 21. It's the second parable that involves a man, a vineyard, and his son. Actually, there's two sons in the first story, but these two stories both involve a man, a vineyard, and a son. So the parable begins like this, in verse 23 of chapter 21. Hear another parable, Jesus speaking. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And then he leased it to tenants and went into another country. So here you have the basic elements of the story. There is a man who is apparently a man of some means because he is able to own property, buy land, and then invest in a vineyard. I don't know how many of you have vineyards or know much about vineyards. I have a vineyard. Well, not actually, as you'll find out according to the definition. I only have three vines in my vineyard, and it's only one row. You'll find out why that's significant in a moment. But I have a vineyard, sort of. I can tell you this, if you plant vines this year, you will see nothing for several years to come. You'll see some leaves and they'll put out vines, you know, it'll grow and so forth. But you're not going to have grapes, at least not to talk about, for years. So when you plant a vineyard, you're talking about a 5, 10, 15, 20-year investment in maintenance and in upkeep before you finally start seeing a good crop. All right, so this is a man who has the means to do that and wait for his investment to start paying off. He not only has the means to plant the vineyard, but he also has the means to develop it. He plants his plants, he puts them in rows and so forth, but he also builds a wall, a fence around the vineyard. He builds a tower so you can watch over the property, and he digs a wine press. He digs a hole, lines it uh, with stone, and it's there so that when the grapes are crushed, when he finally has grapes to crush, the juice runs down into the wine press, into the pit. 
And then he does one last thing, because he's an astute business person. He enters into a contract with some men to take care of the vineyard. He's a businessman. He's got things to do. He's not going to hang around for 20 years tending to these grapes for the crop to come in. He's got other things to do. So he hires some individuals to look over the land, to take care of the vines for this however long it takes to get to a crop. Now, the contract is probably in exchange for the produce. In other words, let's say out of however many pounds of grapes are harvested, they'll get 20% at the end of the contract, at the, once the crop comes in. They'll get 20% or 30% or something like that. When you think about it, that's a pretty smart idea, right? Because what is going to be the motivation of the tenants? They're going to want to see that this land does well because the bigger the crop, the better the payout. The better the payout, the more likely that the landowner is going to renew their lease, right? So it's to their advantage to do well, to take good care of this land. This, this businessman, he's a smart guy. This is not just for money. This is for an eventual payout. And so it is that the crop grows, and over time it uh, matures, and it's time finally to harvest this uh, vineyard. Verse 34. When the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Makes sense, right? It's time. The crop is finally coming in. He sends some men to, to, uh, to collect. What does it say? To collect what? His fruit. Okay? His fruit. doesn't say anything else. It says his fruit. Fruit. That's an important point. Let's keep going. Verse 35. And the tenants took his servants, and they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Interesting reception, isn't it? Now, I just had to clarify for second service, by the way, that stoned is not a drug reference here, okay? So some of you who are children of the 60s and 70s, um, no, this is not what that means. This means throwing rocks at people until they're dead. All right? That's what that's about. Now, in the years that have gone by, something has changed, right? These tenants have changed somehow. They have changed their attitude. They have changed their perspective. They have changed their thinking to believe that somehow they can own this land. They have lost sight of the contract or the covenant, if you will, that they've agreed to, and they've lost sight of who they are. They went from being tenants to being property owners. They are trying to possess what was once entrusted to them. But you know, they never built the vineyard, right? They didn't plant the plants. They didn't hire the people to build the wall. They didn't hire the, the person to build the tower, to dig the wine press, to put all that effort in. It wasn't their money that put this vineyard in place, was it? So apparently they seem to think that they can get something for nothing. You know, we can just, because we spent our time here, because we worked at this, we can have it. If we just work hard enough, it's ours. Hmm when really all it was was something they were entrusted with. Which brings us to the wall around the property and the wall in our story. The wall around the property was meant as a fence. It was what the master put up to define the boundaries of the vineyard. 
and to keep out some animals and maybe a would-be thief or two, but it really was just a fence. It was a definition. It was a boundary. It was not meant to be a barricade. It was not meant to be a fortification. It was a definition of what the property was. You know, they say that good fences make for good neighbors. And why is that? Because it defines the property. If you know where your property is and where the neighbor's property is, you don't have to fight about it, do you? Because there it is. There's the fence. It marks the property. Well, the tenants have decided that instead of defining and defending the property, this fence is really a fortification, a way to deny the owner what is rightfully his. And the tower, it's built not to look over the land, but to spy and to watch for those oncoming servants, and as we find out soon, the sun, so they can prepare a defense. Well, as we read in in verse 34 and 35, the master first sends three servants. We know that there are three in total because we're told that the first one is beaten, the second one is killed, and the third one is stoned. Well, for most people, that'd be pretty much the end of the story, right? I mean, there you go. They've killed the servants. All right, time to call the authorities. But not this master. He tries a second time. And he tries not with three more servants. He tries with maybe 30 more servants. We'll find out. Verse 36. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they they did the same to them. Let me explain the they and the them in that last sentence. The they is the tenants who did the same to them, that is, the servants that were being sent. So however much larger the second group is, the tenants do not back down in their treatment, do they? This thing is escalating. It's gone from three to however many now that they're killing, they're beating, they're stoning, they're getting rid of. They're denying the owner his property, and they're willing to kill to keep it. Most people at this point would be long past dealing with these crazy tenants, right? It's time to call in the military or something. I mean, these guys are crazy. I mean, they're killing people all over the place. This is just not right. But the master isn't done just yet. He is going to try one more time. He's going to make a final attempt, a final appeal, and this long-suffering master is going to try one more time. And what does he do? Let's look at the next verse, 37. Finally, He, that is the master, sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, ah, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Wow. These guys are hardcore. I mean, (laughs) serious stuff, right? I mean, the son of the master has shown up. He is there to remind them that the master has sent him. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. It's the same as if you're dealing with the father himself. And surely you will respect him because he is from the master. But the response of the tenants is a rather interesting one. They make this interesting conclusion. They somehow think that because the son is there, the master must be dead. They're like, oh, look, this is the only heir left. If we kill this guy, we can have this property. We can have squatter's rights to this land. We'll be the ones on it. We're the ones that put the time into it. There's nobody to inherit this because we've killed him. (laughs) Well, besides that little detail. But anyway, it's ours. 
And so they kill the son. Throw him outside of the fence, outside of the property that was rightfully his. They toss him out and they leave him there and they go back to the vineyard and settle in to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Except for one small detail. There's one thing they've overlooked. What is it? Something they're missing here. Oh, yeah. The master's not dead. He's not dead. Uh Uh-uh. He's very much alive. And I would say probably very much angry at this point. Verse 40. Jesus asked the question at the end of the parable. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard... See, he's not dead. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? Well, right away, perhaps, the next verse tells us what the answer was. They said to him, that's the religious leader standing around him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. You can hear the emotion in their voices, right? And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Man, he's going to let them have it. Let them have it. He's going to, not just a death, but a miserable death. Not just throw them in jail, but man, they're going to make them suffer. Yeah, that's what he should do. You know, sometimes Jesus must just kind of stand there and go, yeah, uh uh-huh, wait for it, wait for it. And then there's that little flicker, that little flinch in the face, that little twitch. Verse 45 tells us that it did happen. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Ah. (laughs) The light goes on, right? And all of a sudden, there it is. There it is. They're like, hold it. Oh, yeah. I think he's talking about us. Is he talking about us? Yeah, I think he's talking about us. He is? Yeah, yeah, he's talking about us. And Jesus makes it very clear that that's exactly what he's talking about. He says, without hesitation, that the vineyard is the kingdom of God not the kingdom of the Israelites. And God is the master of this vineyard, this kingdom. He furthermore says that the kingdom of God, or the vineyard, can be given and it can be taken away. God provides it and he can take it away. Something else they had not really thought of. The idea of being chosen was that somehow God could not unchoose, as if he were defined by our definitions. And then finally, Jesus makes the point very clear that the son of the master, which is to say the son of God, is going to be killed by the undependable tenants. He's predicting his own death. And in a few, this is by the way this story happens on after the triumphal entry. So in a few days, Jesus will be crucified. You know, as I mentioned, vineyards were, were very key elements in, in, in biblical times. They were something that, a property, a piece of property that was very valuable and, and you put a lot of investment into it. So it's no surprise, perhaps, that if you look into the rabbinical writings of the time, in what was, we call the Mishnah today, you'll find a discussion about, a debate actually, about what is a vineyard. Right, the rabbis love discussing things and defining things. And so they have this whole section that they define what a vineyard is. And there were two schools of thought, because I don't know, it seems to me like what a vineyard is, you know, pretty obvious, but they apparently had this difference of opinion. One school of thought by Rabbi Shammai and his followers was that a vineyard was five vines. Not four, not three, but if you plant five vines, you have a vineyard. There you go, five vines, you're good. 
Now, the, the followers of Rabbi Hillel said, no, 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 no. That's not a vineyard. A vineyard is two rows of vines. You have to have at least two rows. They have to be in rows. You can't just plop vines down. You've got to have them in rows. And the rows have to be made up of two vines, two vines, and one vine. See, they weren't going to say five because that's what the other guy said. You know, you can't agree with him. So instead, it's two vines, two vines, and one vine in each row. Not two vines, one vine, and two vines, or two vines, one vine, one vine, two vines, whatever. No, it was two vines anyway. So they had this whole discussion about the vines and the rows. Furthermore, they had this discussion about what is a wall. If you're going to build a wall, this is what it has to be. The wall has to be 10 hands high, which means you take your hand, hand like this, like this. So if you're a man with small hands, you have a short wall, all right? And if you have big hands, you have a taller wall, whatever. But anyway, 10 hands high, all right? And it had to be four hands wide, not three, but four. And again, you know, if you had small hands, it was a narrow wall. But if you had big hands, it was a wide wall. And that is the wall. And they had this whole discussion. There's pages of discussion about this as to why four and three and five and all those other kinds of things. Listen, if you have this much debate about what constitutes a vineyard or a wall or ordination or whatever it is, you've lost sight of what that vineyard is, of what a vineyard is about, haven't you? To me, it seems like a vineyard is whatever you plant to get however many grapes you need to have as much as you want to drink and or sell, right? That's a vineyard. And a wall is whatever it takes to keep out whoever or whatever is trying to get in. All right, if that needs to be a five-foot wall, a 10-foot wall, a 10-foot wide wall, whatever it is, electric fence, whatever works for you, right? So based on that, if all you can do is plant two vines and put a three-inch high wall around it, then there's your vineyard, because maybe that's all you can afford right now. Maybe that's all the land you have, but you've got a vineyard. Add on to it later. The point is this. Whenever you get to the place where you are so caught up in definitions that you've lost sight of the purpose, the practicality of what you're talking about, then you've lost your way. And now the definitions are more important than the purpose. You're caught up in the details instead of the plan. This is what happens in this parable. Somewhere along the way, the tenants who never owned the property never put the resources into making it happen, but were instead entrusted with its care. Somewhere along the way, they have changed their thinking. They have come to the mistaken conclusion that because they put effort into it, they are owed the land. And furthermore, they think they can possess it if you just kill enough people to do it. You know, if you have to kill people to prove your belief, probably not really a strong belief to begin with, is it? You've got to wonder about that. So what they had been entrusted with, they feel they should now be entitled to. They owed it, it was owed to them, so therefore they should own it. What had been a promise has become a possession, and what was once given to them by grace they now defend with guns. A beautiful blessing and a belief have become a bludgeon, a bat to beat people with. This chosen nation, this peculiar people, if you will, known as Israel, are going to become an unchosen nation, an ordinary people. And Jesus is there to point out to the religious leaders of his day and perhaps to ours as well that God can change his mind. He's not committed to us. We should be committed to him. 
He doesn't need us. We need him. He can use stones if he needs to. We're the ones who are the tenants. Let me give you a little history lesson. I, I really enjoy history and find it meaningful. And so let me tell you a story. And of course, we'll have to have some pictures and a map because you can't tell history without a map, right? But don't worry, there won't be a quiz on this afterwards. World War I was largely fought in the country of France. It was primarily a contest between the French and the Germans. There were some others in there as well, but that was primarily what it was. And it involved something that was known as trench warfare. Now, basically what happened is the two sides kind of went at it. They, one country invaded the other and so forth, and they fought mar- largely on foot with guns, rifles, and some artillery. And at some point, they kind of hit a stalemate. They, they couldn't go any further, and so they started digging. They would dig down. They would dig trenches for each side, would dig trenches so that, you know, they couldn't be shot so easily, and the artillery wouldn't, you know, destroy them so quickly and so forth. And it became known as trench warfare. It was nasty, brutal stuff. There wasn't anything really much in the way of mechanized tank armor and so forth, and planes were just in their infancy, so it was largely a foot soldier fight. Thousands of men died trying to capture a yard or two. And there was this no man's land in the middle filled with barbed wire and and, and mines and and all kinds of things, and it it was just horrific. Well, after the war was over, the French decided that they weren't gonna do that again. So in the 1920s and the 1930s, they decided they were going to build a wall. They were going to build a series of fortifications. Here's a picture of one of the, of the fortresses that they built. They built a whole series of these, and they, they were very well-planned and in- intricate, and, and there were a lot of passageways underground and communication lines and power lines. There were underground rail lines to bring in supplies and so forth. And the entire complex became known as the Maginot Line was named after Andre Maginot, who was the French Minister of Defense at the time and the champion of the project. Well, here's a picture. Here's a map of the the Maginot Line. Here's where it was located on the map. You can see the red line there towards the right-hand side. That's the Maginot Line, that solid red line. There's the country of France on the left, country of Germany on the right, and to the north is the country of Belgium. And then there's a little tiny square in there that says Luxembourg, where the name is way bigger than the country itself. But anyway, the Maginot Line was this defensive structure, this wall. And the thinking of the French was this. Look, the Germans are going to invade someday. They're over here on the right-hand side. They're going to come through and into France from their border, and we're going to build this wall, this fortification, this series of fortifications, and we're going to stop the Germans there. And they're going to have to struggle for, you know, a couple of weeks or so. And eventually they'll work their way to the north. And at the northern part, you can see some dashed lines. The line goes dashed instead of solid. Up there at the northern end of the the solid line was the Ardennes Forest, a very thick, dense forest. They said they'll never be able to get through that. And beyond that is the country of Belgium. They're not going to go there because Belgium is neutral. They're not on the side, of the, British, or the side of the French or the side of the Germans. They're neutral, so the Germans won't go through there either. So they'll, be, they'll have to fight their way up there, and then eventually they'll get up to the top and go around the top of the thing. And by the time they get there, about two or three weeks or so, we figure, we'll be mobilized. We'll be ready. We'll have our allies, the British, helping us out, and we'll be ready to take them on. That was the plan. Well, they were right about one thing. The Germans invaded. That much they got right. The Germans invaded on the 10th of May, 1940. And they attacked the Maginot Line. But you know what they did? Within five days, they were halfway across France. And in two weeks, they were at the English Channel in the city of Dunkirk, 
may have heard of that somewhere, where the British were just landing their troops and the British had to literally swim for it, just leave everything behind and run back across to England because the Germans were already there. They'd cut the country in half and they'd isolated the reinforcements. How did they do that? Where did the French go wrong? Well, the way they did it was the Germans had simply gone around the line. They didn't stop at the line. They went around it. It's like, we don't mean to pay any attention. to it. We want to go right around it. You know what had happened between World War I and World War II? Two things had been invented. Tanks and airplanes. And tanks were way faster than people on foot. And airplanes, they just flew right over the wall. They didn't care. And anybody that moved behind that structure, anybody that moved in the countryside, the planes just dropped bombs on them. Easy enough. The Germans called their method Blitzkrieg, lightning war. We still use the term in our language today. If you ever watch an American football game, you'll hear them talk about blitz, blitzing. It's a lightning attack. And that's what it is. The problem for the French was that they spent all this time and money and effort building a wall based on the last war, based on the last conflict, not on the one that was coming. They were focusing on what had happened before instead of what was coming up ahead. And so they, th and they also thought that the Germans were only going to behave in one way. They're just going to come straight at us. I know that's what they're going to do. And we'll be fine because they're just going to come straight at us. And guess what? They didn't. They went around. They went over. They didn't care. The Maginot Line actually survived the war because it never really got used. It's still a lot of it still extent to the, uh, uh, exists today. Here's my point. God is not contained by our boundaries. He's not contained by our walls. He's not contained by our barricades even. If he wants to, he can just go around us. And he can also ignore any definitions or doctrines or dictates that we have put in place, if he needs to. Just because people have determined that certain truths can only be communicated in one manner doesn't mean they can't be communicated a different way. Just because there hasn't been a vote that women can be called of God to minister doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's going to stop moving in people's lives and calling them to ministry. It's not going to happen. Just because you decide that the Sabbath can only be kept in one way or that only certain music can be worshipped doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is limited and is not going to show up just because we've done that. You see, you can't stop the kingdom of God. You can't stop the Holy Spirit with a vote or a position paper or a website or, or even 28 essential and fundamental beliefs because Jesus makes it very clear in this parable that the kingdom of God is of God, not of mankind. So as soon as we start to think otherwise, we have problems, don't we? The walls around the kingdom are meant to be inclusionary not exclusionary. We are given an opportunity to be a part of the kingdom. We're able to partner with God, to be partners with him, and to be tenants, if you will, to work with him in this vineyard that he has given to us. But we're only tenants. We're not owners. It's not up to us. This is the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Delwyn. We are to bear fruit for the kingdom not try to take possession of it or to own it just because we have spent so much time and effort. Yes, we have spent time and effort, but it's not ours. It's God's. If we ever start to think otherwise, 
Guess what? The master can show up and he can go around our walls and he can go over our walls and he can go under our walls or he can just simply take it away and give it to someone else. As the Pharisees found out, you know what? He can take this from us. And guess what? He did. You see, if we are part of the kingdom of God, then we should be known not so much for what we believe, but how we behave. We should not be known so much for our creeds, but for our compassion. It's not for who we keep on the outside of the wall, but who we include on the inside. The wall is meant to be a boundary, not a defense, not a fortification, not a barricade. Here's your tweetable moment, your 150 characters or less, your hashtag for this morning. Some of you know what I'm talking about, some of you don't. Ask your grandkids. Here it is. Don't turn your blessing into a barricade. Don't turn your blessing into a barricade. Don't take what God has given you, the opportunity you've had, and say, this is how we're going to decide who's in and who's out. It's not for that. You are here to work with God. The kingdom of God is of God not of your name here. This is what we're called to. Don't turn your blessing into a barricade. 